Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. This goes out every Monday night on our own YouTube channel. Look, just go to Switzer Financial Group. On tonight's program, we have Michael McCarthy from CNC Markets and Julia Lee from Berman Invest. Now, I've got them to talk about media stocks that they like. But we all know that the media industry is changing. Free-to-air is challenged. We have all these challenging uh, organisations like Netflix and Prime and Amazon and all of them coming along. Where do we invest going forward in this really interesting sector? Then Charlie Aitken comes on and he'll give us his best idea for investing in the media as well as he gives us a really interesting local stock that he thinks has a real chance of making a big rebound. So you don't want to miss that. And finally, Anthony Doyle Fidelity gives us his view on how you can invest in Asia, which is pretty relevant considering that a trade deal is likely, I think, before Christmas. That's the show. Without any further ado, let's go to Michael McCarthy and Julia Lee. As usual, I'm interviewing Charlie Aiken, and then I want to talk to him about what we've seen go on with Donald Trump and Hong Kong and we're awaiting a China reaction. And some people are asking me, should they hold back investing? I want to talk to Charlie about timing the market or timing the market. Something you wrote about in the Switzer Report. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, always good, Peter. Let's start off with the controversial issues. I actually, some of our clients have asked us after reading something I wrote. Well, in the sense I wrote, I don't know what China's going to do to react to Donald Trump supporting the Hong Kong protesters. But it could slow up or jeopardise the trade deal. What's your reaction on that? Yeah, well, look, look, it's probably just another negotiating tactic from Trump. He's all about full pressure all of the time. Yeah. And I think it was nothing more than that. It was a piece of legislation that would have gone through anyway. He didn't have to sign it, but he did. Yeah. The markets on Friday didn't really care that much. No, they are off, off a few basis points. Mm. Yes, it was shortened because of Thanksgiving. Hong Kong's up today. Yeah. The Hong, Hong Kong share market's that, up. Yeah. You know, most of the leading stock shares are, are up. And look... I think we are heading to that phase one deal, but it's probably in the market anyway. Yeah. And I don't think that, that piece of legislation is enough to derail it. You've got some sort of, you know, you've got a bit of noise out of China, but yeah. I don't think it's enough. Okay. So let's talk about, because you wrote about it in the Switzer report, uh, talking about timing the market and timing. Now, you're a fund manager, yep. and in a perfect world, it's great to be in the market, but the buy-in at the lowest possible price and write it up. But your argument is basically time in the market's more important than time. Yeah, look, I think very few people outside of some technical analysts who are quite good at it mm. are actually good at timing the market. Mm. But timing the market assumes that you've got sort of no percent or 100% of your money in it all the opportune times or not. Yeah. I think that's highly impractical. Most of us are terrible traders. Mm. You know, it's actually quite hard to buy when it's, you know, when there's blood in the streets and yeah. quite hard to sell when it's euphoric. Yeah. And look, we did some, uh, as, we, as I wrote in the Switzer Super Report, we looked back over the last 15 years and simply analysed what your returns would be if you'd missed the five best up days, the 10 best up days and the yeah. 20 best up days. Yeah. And they're materially different outcomes mm. to just being invested all the time yeah. and taking the ups and downs. Yeah. So if, if you're invested all the time, what kind of expected return did you get compared to if you missed the best five days because you didn't well, know the, when well, they the, the market return for the 15 years in the MSCI World Equity Index that I follow that yeah. has benchmark was 7.1% compound per annum. Okay. Good return. Yeah, it's good okay. Return. Fine. Yeah. Better than cash. Better than everything else. Better than term deposits. Better than a term deposit. Better than, yeah. and, but if you missed just the five biggest up days in 15 years in the index, your return dropped to 4.8%. Mm. If you missed the 10 biggest up days, it dropped to 35 And I think if you missed the... Th 
20 biggest updates, it actually dropped to less than inflation. Yeah. Quite amazing. Right, so in your lifetime, have you missed big days? Not to say that you weren't or an investor, but have you been surprised? That's probably the better question. Were you surprised what days actually ended up being huge days? Yeah, for well, someone? they usually come after some big negative event or big, right. you know, obviously a period of weak sentiment. You can even look at very recently. In August, we were getting a lot of questions from investors about, oh, this looks terrible, yeah. markets are breaking down, technicals look bad, China and America aren't getting on, or oh, the US reporting season looks bad, mm -hmm. inverted yield curve, one of my favourites. Yeah. Where's that today? Yes, right. You know? And here we are. It's uninverted, it, by the it's way. It's uninverted, yes, whatever that <laughs> word is. Here we are, three months later, Wall Street's up 11% from, from the middle of August, right? Yeah. You have missed an 11% return, which is more than the average compound return over the last 15 years. Yeah. So if you'd panicked in August and sold or sold out completely of equities, you've missed almost a year's annual return in three months. Mm. So look, for me, that was a recent example. I think that there's very strong arguments for being invested in great businesses all of the time. Yeah. It also comes down to portfolio construction. So you don't want a one-way bet on technology or one-way bet on resource stocks or one-way bet on banks or have some diversity, have a bunch of different sectors that would perform a little bit differently and have some defensive stocks in your portfolio. Yeah. But I think with interest rates at basically zero, there's an argument for being fully invested yeah. all of the time at the moment, for well, sure. You, you would have noticed, because you and I have talked and you would have occasionally written, uh, read me, I guess, <laughs> uh, where well, I often have said at the when it seemed like the market had overreacted, I've often used the term, let's buy the dip. Yep. And, and, and until I'm really scared that the market is getting close to a, a really scary point, I'm not, I haven't changed my attitude. Yeah. Is, is that a, a, a reasonable strategy? Like, if you think you're hitting a scary moment, reducing your exposure, like for example, there have been times mm. when I've been 100% exposed to the stock yep. market because so I had total confidence. But if I start getting a little bit toey, or in your own case, do you ever sort of say, okay, I'm 100% invested, but now I'm going to go, go to 70% because... No, I, just I would never go to 70%. I, the most cash I'd generally run would be 10%. I, I, I meant 30%. Yeah, 30%. yeah I, 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 no, no. See, and so I think there's always companies, defensive companies I can buy that would protect me or something else that yeah. would protect me in that, in that environment. Mm. I think particularly now with central banks just taking interest rates to zero and quantitative easing back in the game again, yeah. I think most dips are a buying opportunity. I think that's it's what you've got to condition yourself to, Pete, is the scarier the headlines, you must think, what am I going to buy? Mm. It's almost, I haven't done it for my phone, but it's mm. like Westpac right now. Mm. Every single headline is negative. The CEO's gone, the chairman's mm. going, the shares mm. are down 13%. They've had a capital raise in the sense, everyone's underwater. Your chances of making money from here are high, yeah. in my view. Now, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next week, mm. but if you bought some Westpac shares over the next month or so, I don't think in the long term you'll do too badly. But you've got to peak by that sort of peak of corpse kicking, yeah. which happens in Australia more, more than any other market. <laughs> yeah. But it happens around the world too. So I think that judging the press and thinking, you know, I've got a little bit of cash, I'm going to spend it because the margin of safety is there. And something like Westpac, I actually think the margin of safety is there. Okay. You know, Are you not, toying with the idea of buying some Westpac? No, well, fund? we run a global fund. So, like, you know, the answer is no. I leave Australian stocks to, to Australians yeah. broadly. But... You know, in my heart of hearts, would I think something like Westpac is a capitulation buy? Yeah, I do. Mm. But I just remind you that everything in these the markets now is so media driven, so Twitter driven, so headline driven, so everything's so instant. Yeah. So trade war, no trade war. Trump signs a bill. Trump doesn't sign a bill. Everything reacts to the to the present. And people like you and me have to work out what the headlines are in 12 months' time. Mm. And I think they're going to be quite more, much more sanguine. And I think next yeah. year could be actually pretty okay again. Okay. Maybe not 20% year, but. Uh. Yeah. All right, so you've, 
inadvertently given us a tip on a local stock, which well, you don't. Well, I do. Know. I just no, think that's no. an example of something that, you yeah. know, if you've got dry powder, I think you should consider looking okay. at. Is there a foreign stock that you've, you've recently said, I like, like or I want more of it? Well, last month, we had a good month last month. Fund was up 6.2%. I thought I'd just get Microsoft, that plug in. Microsoft really No, it was helped. Disney, the mouse that roared. Okay. I actually got my daughter with me in the studio here yep. today. Yep. No, Disney's been she's a She's your, your real advisor when it comes Correct. to Disney. She, she's a very good stock picker, actually. <laughs> but Disney, like we downloaded Disney Plus, and it, there it is on my phone. It's been a big success. Mm. Disney shares up 18% to an all-time high. Mm. But they've also had Frozen 2, an animated box office record yeah, this weekend. Yeah. And guess what comes up on the 19th of December? Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, which will be a huge box office hit. So Even I'm looking forward to that. So, but Disney, it's doing what it should do. The box office doesn't drive revenue, doesn't drive profits. It's what happens for the next 10, 10 or 20 years after the box office, yeah. in the parks, in the merchandising, in Disney Plus that we that we stream. Yeah. So Disney's been a really good one for us, and that's just a stock that not many Australians own, but most mm. people know their product. Mm. And that just shows you the power of brands, the power of content, and the power of content with technology. So therefore, I can say with total confidence, Charlie comes from Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Aiken from Aiken Investment Management. Well, guys, this is going to be our most exciting one because we're talking about the media. Oh, is it easy dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, Macca, you, you sent me a few that you like. Mm. And, uh, we'll kick off with you and we'll see if what Julie gives you the thumbs up or the thumbs down according to um, her considerations. NEC Nine Entertainment. What do you reckon? Nine Entertainment, an interesting one. This is, of course, now the merger of the old Channel Nine television operation and its online operations with the Fairfax, Fairfax Media yeah. Group. And this appears to be They're just taking the radio, network, like Macquarie Radio Network as well, haven't they? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this is an interesting build out of the platforms. When other people are shrinking and specialising or going into new spaces, yeah. they seem to be expanding. So it's an open question as to whether or not this model is going to work, but they're certainly having a go at it. And at current price. Prices, it looks okay. Mm. It's cheaper uh, on a. It's on a cheaper market multiple. It's, uh, sorry, it's on a cheaper P multiple than the market mm. at around 14 or 15 times next year's earnings. Yep. Growth outlook at the moment is a little constrained. In fact, most analysts have it falling. Mm. Um, but if they prove this model up, it could turn out to be a real value play. So mm. I'm not f firmly behind it, but mm. I can see why investors might be looking at it closely. The one thing I've always, and I've, you know, I've worked in the media a long time. I've always figured that, like for example, the newspapers weren't good at promoting their people on radio and TV. Like, at one stage, Fairfax owned 2UE, and all their journalists were on the ABC. <laughs> yeah, like, I thought, like, but I think UMarx is actually working out he has to use all his talent across all his platforms. And that's going to be the interesting thing. Julie, what do you reckon about Nine? Look, I think it's the best one out of a bad bunch. Um, the problem with this sector is nasty, the structural. Is Her so objectivity mean. is so nasty. <laughs> Us guys could never be so horrible as you, Mark. But a woman, straight away. Anyway. Well, the problem is the structural challenges as it's been facing this uh, sector, not only in Australia, but globally. And that's been reflected in the share price. If you have a look at stocks like Nine or Seven West Media, mm. um, you know, over the last five years, is share prices are down 70%, if not greater. Yeah. So the key here is the earnings outlook for the company. And earnings has been in steady decline over at least the last five years. And you can very easily separate stocks in the media space into old as well as new media. Mm. The old space, earnings have been declining and are continuing to be forecast to decline. So that there are stocks like Nine, Seven West Media, uh, Southern Cross Media, as, as well as Prime. 
On the new media side, you have car sales domain and REA. Um, and these are areas where you've seen an increase in growth. Mm. And over the next couple of years as well, they're forecast to increase earnings by 30 to 45%. Mm. Um, so you, you're seeing this earnings growth continuing to underpin the growth story in the new media stocks, whereas the old media stocks, none of these are forecast to, mm. to grow earnings over the next couple of years. I think Umedia though is a separate basket. Okay, we'll get that in a second. But it is interesting, isn't it, you mentioned car sales, Domain, domain and REA. And the, the seek fit in that area as well. Yes. And these are all areas that used to spend heavily in old media. It's like, in a sense, they've been sucked out and they've become like little media businesses in their own right. Absolutely. Oh. And out of the, the three, Domain is forecast to grow the most over the next, next really? two years. Yeah. Um, 43%, like which is surprising given that it's the second yeah. in this space after REA. And I think REA is forecast to grow about 34%. It's been a great success story. Yes, absolutely. Well, Kerry Packer famously described the, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald classifieds as the rivers of gold. And mm. these businesses effectively re diverted those rivers. Yeah, right. So what do you think about those media ones that Julia likes. Obviously, the, like Southern Cross. Southern Cross, interesting proposition. Um, they're, they're he gives them a chance to, he's really kind to the old people. <laughs> well done, Macca. Well, it, it, they're in radio, Peter. They're heavily invested in radio, yeah. and I don't see that lasting another couple of generations. But right now, they're, mm. they're getting advertisers and they're getting plenty of share of the market. So yeah. uh, that's money, and, and I'm, I'm happy with that. It's also trading on a much cheaper multiple than are the you, others. Are you generous with Seven West Media? Improv. Well, that's an interesting. They're obviously playing catch up with the others in trying to expand their network. Mm. Interestingly, they're divesting the radio network to Southern Cross, mm. uh, but bringing Prime into it does give them much more reach and opportunity to to leverage their content that they're already buying. Mm. So uh, I, I see good sense in it. Whether or not it'll pan out, uh, given their limited uh, exposure to other channels, mm. is another question. Okay, what's your favourite of the old media? I'll get Julie to comment. Of the old, I prefer nine. Okay. And you, Julia? I'd agree that nine has most traction and it's all about advertising. Okay. Let's go to the newer ones like OML, Umedia. You've brought it up already. Mm. Do you like Umedia? Look, Umedia has been punished because it's a cyclical stock. It's all about businesses advertising. Yeah. And when you see a weak Australian economy, Umedia does it tough. But it's during those tough times that this stock looks attractive because you know that yeah. when the economy turns that you're going to see an uptick in terms of Umedia. I yeah. like the assets that it holds. And I also like the digitalization of the assets, which means they can very quickly change billboards. Um, and I think that offers opportunities, no, not only in terms of costs mm. and you know not manually having to put those ads up, but also in terms of offering a premium product so that you can change it with the changing times or the changing weather, or as you get recognition um, happening as well, you know, as a car drives past, you know, mm. great work driving a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you get, Julia, you when you drive your Porsche yeah, past? see what aspirations she has. All right, Macca, what do you got, Umedia? Uh, Umedia, I like a lot. Uh, and I like the way it dominates its space. Everybody loves a monopoly, at least from the investment point of view. Isn't the mob, uh, it, it it, it's, it's, it's not, the most noticeable from, it, from my it, point of view. It is by far the largest in the outdoor advertising space. Okay. So um, it, it basically has the market to itself, I would argue. Mm. There are a number of regional players who compete in various parts of Australia, but mm. this one's all over. And, and like Julia, I think they've brought a fresh approach to what has been a very traditional form of advertising, and they've revamped the numbers entirely, trading on a very modest multiple, 
Uh, I think the growth estimates are, are weak. Um, I think analysts have misunderstood where the growth comes from, but yeah. we do need that cyclical kicker. But yeah. once it comes in, uh, I think this will, yeah. will be Yeah, we might have to wait six months before the economy looks convincing enough for the, the share price to actually respond. But I think you guys are right. Mm. I, I think definitely this is going to be hinged, hinging on what the economy does. But uh, I think we agree. We, we, should have, we should actually have assessment like, <laughs> we agree. Three out of three. That's a bar. <laughs> All right, REA, 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 you've, you've touched on it already. You said the main you, you like more than REA at the moment. Okay. I was pleasantly surprised when I had a look at these companies today, knowing we're going to have this conversation, because the growth forecasts here are still very strong. And that means when I look at the P ratio compared to the estimated growth, yeah. they look quite reasonable. Yeah. Now, of them, uh, I found that REA Group is the more expensive. It's getting up towards a growth multiple of around three times. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they also have the superior growth. So yeah. A bit like a CSL, isn't it, in that mm. sense? And it, it is hard to buy a $100 stock, you know. Yeah. It just It's a psychological barrier. There's no reason. Reason, you're still mm. putting your ten thousand dollars in or whatever it is you put in the million they pay you a year working at CMC, a hundred dollars a month for you, Every cent counts, brother. <laughs> Every cent counts. All right, CAR. Who's CAR for my my yeah, car sales. I mean, this is car an interesting sales. one given that in the new car sales area, we've seen um, those numbers under quite a lot of pressure. But in terms of car sales strategy, you know, Australia's probably more of a mature market, but it's great to see that they've made acquisitions around the region and around the globe yeah. into more immature markets. So taking the expertise that they have in Australia and then making those acquisitions, mm. and I think that's really what's going to be the driver of growth for car sales. Not so much the Australian business, but more the South Korean, the Mexican business that they're really starting mm. to build up. The okay. driver of growth, that was intentional, yeah, was good. it? Yeah. <laughs> we'll give that a tick. <laughs> right. Didn't even realise. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, once again, it's about the growth. And the thing about it is, as they have already got a lot of the infrastructure in place, growth from here drops almost straight through to the bottom line. So um, very attractive. Uh, in a market and in an environment where growth is hard to buy, this is an easy mm. one. And this, I prefer this one to REA at current share prices. Okay, now, uh, we've been driven by... Macca's um, stocks here. I'm sure you have come with a, another media stock that you like or dislike. Oh, well, I, I went um, <laughs> the other way. I just chose a stock that I liked. Good. Yeah, we, we like you just freeing with the format because <laughs> well, people love what you I like. I started anyway. crunching the numbers with these media stocks um, and in terms of earnings growth and yeah. um, earnings outlook. So I just, um, I do like stocks which grow um, yeah. and I Funny like that. strong growth and with the media you want, companies you want to don't grow back <laughs> no. <laughs> no. okay we're with you on this the media companies even the most optimistic ones you know over the next two mm. years forecast growth of about 43 yeah. percent um, email payments uh, forecast growth um, in terms of earnings per share should more than double over the next couple email of years email payments yeah. so email is the stock code um, they look at things like prepaid cards um, when it comes to the gaming industry um, like guess getting your winnings on a card or sports betting um, or even in the salary packaging area getting mm. dis disimbursements as well so mm. look there's a few growth levers that they have there they're growing quite strongly around about 30 percent in the salary packaging space sports betting if the u.s starts to allow sports betting in more states it's a massive growth area mm. and just recently they made an acquisition of premium financial services um, over in uh, europe it's based out of ireland but over in europe where it offers white label payment as well as banking services mm. and that's been growing at more than 30 percent as well so mm. huge growth area 
And um, I think this company, is, it's a small company, but yeah. I think it's a, a prime for growth. And, and are you going to talk about this tomorrow at our conference? And a conference? few more. I've yeah. got a few more up my sleeve. Yeah. So if you're doing nothing tomorrow, you come along to City Tats in Sydney. Julie's going to tell you how she picks these hot shot companies yeah. that she often comes, comes up with. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Maka, we'll get you at the next conference. We didn't want to leave you out, but we ain't room for one. Yeah, it's a fine, fine, fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of the people always miss out to younger people. I'm getting used to it. <laughs> okay, so these guys will join us next week, of course. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. Cheers, Peter. Asia, investing there. Why should people consider giving themselves more exposure to it? Well, as you know, for Australian investors in particular, this has been a really extraordinary year. Three interest rate cuts, record low cash rate of only 75 basis points. The RBA might cut again next year and potentially implement quantitative easing. So Australians now more than ever have to look at international opportunities in order to generate the returns that they once enjoyed mm. um, from defensive assets like cash, like fixed income. And Asia in particular, in a world starved of growth, Asia really shines uh, in terms of some of the long-term structural themes that we're seeing there and some of these themes that companies can tap into to generate those higher returns for Australian investors. Okay. Now, I'm ob obviously going to ask you why Asia, but just in the context of what's been going on, it feels like you're putting forward a contrarian play now which should and could look really sensible 12 months, two years down the track, because we're all worried about the Trump trade war and whether it will be sorted out this time of Christmas or after Christmas. But once it is sorted out, I guess you're arguing Asia's going to be the place to be. Yeah, I mean, these long-term mm. structural trends that I'm talking about are not going away for decades to come. Mm. The region has superior demographics. The region is getting wealthier consumption habits are changing, is they're just tremendous tailwinds. So absent the volatility that you're going to experience from trade tensions or uh, Donald Trump tweets, uh, as mm. we often refer to, mm. these long-term structural themes are significant tailwinds which will likely generate outsized growth going mm. forward, particularly relevant to the sort of expectations that we uh, are forecasting for the developed world. So mm. it is a non-consensus short-term uh, trade, but equally, when you look over the long term, we think that it is a fantastic structural theme to have. Okay, so what are the, and I know you already touched on them, but what are the, the big growth drivers that people should believe in to justify your position? Well, let, let me talk about one example in particular. So, what we've seen as these economies have grown in size and opened up to the rest of the world, and as they've developed, people have naturally got wealthier. So they've become, gone from low income to middle income, for example. So of the next one billion people to enter into the global middle class, 90% will be or live in Asia in particular. That's a great statistic. Yeah, I mean, they're just it huge It just wins numbers. your argument straight away. Like, where do I go with you know, trying to argue with you on that? Right, yes, yeah, yeah. so, and so growth it. is really a reflection of productivity growth and population growth. Yeah. So if, as you move up the, the income scale, the first thing that a low-income family will do is change their diets. They'll start consuming protein for the first time. Mm. Um, so this, isn't ju this is just one theme that I'm talking about. 
family starting to eat protein for the mm. first time. But there are many, many companies that stand to benefit from that sort of theme right along the agricultural food chain. You start to think about the infrastructure that will be needed to transport livestock to an, and forth uh, from processing centres. You think about the, d the demand for agricultural machinery for the first time. You think about, for the and one weapon in the trade wars has been China uh, stopping the import of soybeans mm. uh, from the US, for example, in order to uh, feed livestock. You, then you go right up the supply chain to the, the processing, the packaging, the marketing, uh, and then eventually selling in supermarkets. And then, of course, once I buy the protein, how am I going to cook it? Well, mm. for the first time, I buy a saucepan, or I look to buy a microwave, or I look to buy an oven. So there are companies that exist throughout the emerging market world, but in particular in Asia, that stand to benefit from just that one theme in particular. So if you can identify those companies, you stand to generate, you stand to uh, have the possibility of generating outsized gains going forward. Okay. So I know at times you've described to me some classic companies that have benefited from the middle classification, if such a word exists, of China. I think one was a, a sporting brand. Yeah. Why don't you explain that one? Because that's a, yeah, a sure. classic case, isn't it? Well, you know, I travel around Australia and I meet with financial advisors and I meet clients and I meet the, the big superannuation and the institutional uh, clients as well. And, and the first question I ask is, do, do you know who Li Ning is? Mm. And it's very rare that anyone ever knows who he is. Mm. And he actually lit, lit the Olympic cauldron in the 2008 mm. Beijing Olympics. So he's our equivalent of Kathy Freeman. Yeah. Um, so he started a very successful... Was he a runner or a basketball He was a gymnast. Player? He's a known gymnast. as the Prince okay. of Gymnastics. Yeah. Uh, and he won... He was the first Olympic gold medalist mm. uh, for China. He won three golds, two silver and a bronze in the 1984 Olympics. Mm. So he started a sportswear, mm. very successful uh, company that manufactures sportswear equipment and clothing. Mm. And uh, that company stands to benefit from millennials in particular, demanding designs that uh, are befit, bespoke to the Chinese consumer in particular. So right. they incorporate Mandarin symbols and the color red and uh, increasingly, we've found that millennials are demanding uh, the status uh, of Western brands isn't the same for millennials as it was for their parents, for example. Mm. So they're more than happy to buy Chinese designed and manufactured goods as opposed to Western designed yeah. and Chinese manufactured goods. And that stock is up 200, over 200% 200 over the course of this year on the back of rising revenues and uh, upward profit guidance um, that we've seen uh, throughout the course of this year. Is timing important to this market? Uh, well, I always advocate a long-term holding mm. within emerging markets in particular. So despite the fantastic growth outcomes and the higher returns on offer, it is a more volatile market, meaning you may experience uh, bigger drawdowns than you would experience, say, being invested in the developed world. So we advocate a minimum time horizon of seven-year investment, mm. but really the best way to get the odds on your side of experiencing a positive experience is really to invest for the long term. So whilst I think that there's a short-term tactical opportunity, I also think there's a long-term case for being having a structural allocation within our diversified mm. portfolio of assets. Okay, so I guess your argument also is that if someone goes for an index play for Asia, they will get, I guess, a lot of companies, but you would argue that 
it's important to pick out the companies that are really best positioned for the eventual comeback of Asia. Yeah, I mean, these themes that I'm talking about, you know, demographics, rising income, increasing consumption, they're not new. They've been going on for 30 years, but investors have been frustrated in that it's actually, if you look at an index level, it's actually been more beneficial to be invested in the developed world equity markets as opposed to the emerging yeah. or Asian equity markets. And the reason for that is I have a problem with how these indices are constructed in that they're largely backward looking. They favour the, the slower growing companies that are very large, that mm. exist in the slower uh, growing regions of Asia like South Korea or Taiwan, for example. Yeah and they uh, exclude many of the fastest growing companies, uh, the winners of tomorrow. So mm. an index play really rewards the, the winners of yesterday, but they won't necessarily be the win winners of tomorrow, particularly as these economies, their growth profile changes from an export-driven economy to one which is more internally demand-driven or mm. consumption-led, for example. Okay, in the, the wide world of investing, not the wide world of sport, but investing is a sport, um, there are a lot of players. What's your competitive advantage? What's Fidelity's competitive advantage for people to support you? So we're, we're a very large uh, active investment manager, meaning that uh, we're benchmark agnostic. We don't pay too much attention to the benchmark. So if you invest in one of our funds that tends to have high conviction, a low number of stocks that we invest in, uh, we have a very low overlap with the index, um, which means we have a high level of active money. And we're very diversified. We're, we're well diversified. So we uh, generally experience uh, a better drawdown than the market. So if the market falls, we tend to fall by less uh, over the course of, of time, um, being backward looking. But our main competitive advantage is being a large global active investment manager we have investment resources and analysts based all over the emerging world and particularly in Asia. So we have a very large office in Hong Kong. We have analysts in Singapore. We have the largest research team uh, based in uh, Bombay in India. So it's so important that when you are investing in a region like emerging markets or Asia, that you do your homework, mm -hmm. that you do your fu fundamental bottom-up analysis, that you consider who the auditor is and that you have a a strong background in, in doing that bottom-up research in order to identify those winners that I've spoken about uh, mm. over the course of, over time. Okay, I guess the, the last question I should ask you, Anthony, is, you know, there are local um, Australian pickers of Asian stocks. Um, what's the big advantage, do you think, of having a fund manager who's actually residing in Asia yeah. and making the decisions? Well, it's, it's so important. So we spoke a little bit about Li Ning earlier. Mm. Um, you know, household name in an economy or a country like China with 1.2 billion people, but in Australia, relatively, relatively unknown. So another example uh, of a local theme uh, that Australians may not know about is the world's uh, most popular spirit, for example. So it's not vodka, mm. it's not whiskey, it's not bourbon. It's a spirit called Baiju. Um, so we invest in a company called Kwai Chow Motai, which is a Baiju producer. Um, and Not Motai, Motai. Huge <laughs> demand uh, in China for this spirit, which yeah. is often drunk at family celebrations, like weddings, um, or events like Chinese New Year, for example. 
and we've seen this company generate uh, returns of over 100% this year. So this is the world's most popular spirit, mm. and I, I would suggest that a lot of Australians don't actually know. So in tapping into that rising wealth, rising demand, rising consumption story, we've been able to, to pick a company and invest in its shares that has generated outsized returns for, for our fund over the course of this 12 months. So that's a, a case of where we've been local, we see the local trends, um, we've done our homework, we've met with company management, we've understand the risks around investing and the potential outlook for the business in particular, and we've made an investment and we've generated good returns for, on behalf of our investors in our fund. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. Thanks, Peter. That's Anthony Doyle of Fidelity.